tonight uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, want to turn to that. We're not going to be reading the whole thing. Uh, we're going to take it in sections. And uh, we'll divide it into four sections. We'll look at the birth of Jesus. Uh, then we'll look at the interaction between the angels and the shepherds in the second section. Uh, the third section has to do with the presentation at the temple. And the fourth will be about Jesus talking to the rabbis at the temple at age 12. So it kind of gives you an overview of what we'll be looking at this evening. You know, as I got to thinking about uh, this idea that we call the incarnation, uh, those of us who've been Christians for quite some time now, each year we probably have gone through this reading of these chapters and discussions on the birth of Jesus. And if we're not careful, what can happen is we get a little bit too comfortable with it, maybe treat it as mundane, which it certainly isn't. And we think, well, we know that story. But then, uh, you know, it is the centerpiece of history. It's what matters more than anything else is God coming to this earth and rescuing us, right, from what we deserve. So it's of no little importance and we need to make sure that we approach it that way. When you talk about the incarnation, I think about the idea that God comes down and takes on flesh. And if you stop and think about that, that that's just really an awesome uh, blessing. That God, the creator of the universe, would decide to look down on us, his creation, and rescue us by taking on flesh. The Son of God came and endured all the weakness of the humans we have and he identified with us as sinners. Now, he was not a sinner himself, but he identified with us and took our place. And aren't we grateful? Now, it's still a mystery, even though we believe it to be true, that God would come down and take flesh. You know, the Gnostic persuasion, they would tell you that all material things, such as flesh, would be evil. And so God would have to keep his distance from such things. And, and so they rejected the idea that Jesus was a divinity because God couldn't lower himself to do that. But that's what the message of the gospel is, isn't it? And the apostle John told us that the spirit of the Antichrist was the one that denied that. And so we take it as a centerpiece of Christian theology that here he is, this baby that grows up to be a man that was fully God and yet fully human. And that is a mystery, but one that we are so grateful for. You know, as usual, God does things in unusual ways for us from a human perspective. And he did this with the birth of his son, didn't he? He came to humble circumstances with ordinary parents. There was no pomp and circumstance, but yet it was the greatest event in the history of man. And that's the way God works sometimes, isn't it? 
he appeared through an angel to lowly shepherds out in the countryside to bring this announcement. And by the way, shepherds back then weren't seen as one of the higher members of the social status. <laughs> they were considered kind of the dregs of society. They, their testimony was no good in court. Uh, they uh, could not participate many times in the ceremonies at the temple because they were out and about. They were thought of as thieves. So it's, it's quite apropos, I think, that God would come to them first. Uh, with this news. Uh, and they must have been men uh, of integrity. And so uh, he, he announced it to them. Now, he announces peace on the front end, doesn't he? The good news is peace. You know, from a world's point of view, we think of peace as the absence of conflict, right? Or uh, no wars. You know, you often hear people say, I pray for world peace. But this is not exactly the type of peace that Jesus brings, is it? It's a peace between us and our God. It is one where we are reconciled. What does our sin do to us in our relationship to God? It breaks it. And so we become, in a sense, enemies of God because of our rebellion. And the good news is that Jesus remedies that situation. He is the one that allows us to be made friends with God again. And so that is the message of peace. And just about the time you, got, you think you've got it figured out about Jesus being, bringing peace, he makes a statement like this in Matthew 10. See if you can reconcile these two. In Matthew 10, he says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So the type of peace that he brings is peace for those that accept it, right? But if you decide to reject it, well, there's a conflict. And there were with many Jews who did not accept this type of peace that is offered. Well, the first seven verses are about the birth of Jesus. And you may notice that very, own, uh, very early here that Luke decides to give us some historical markers to place the birth. And he does in chapter 3 and also give us some history. And many of the folks uh, that have tried to criticize the Bible have looked at some of these markers and they, you know, down through the ages have said that he was way off and he didn't know what he was talking about. But time has proven Luke to be a very accurate historian uh, by findings along the way, which we'll get to as we look at this. But one of the things that I don't think I was aware of as a young man was that Jesus was not born at zero A.D. <laughs> you know, uh, we have used this calendar uh, because they wanted to separate the time before Jesus came and the time after he came. And they thought at the time that it would be, they had it kind of pinpointed down. But we've learned since that it was probably more 4 to 6 B.C. in that range in which Jesus was born. We know that for several reasons. We know that Herod the Great, who issued the decree, you know, to kill the babies, uh, reigned in his term 
to 4 B.C. And so uh, this must have been before that, before his term ended. And of course there is no zero, by the way, in the calendar. It moves from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. And so scholars believe he probably uh, died, Jesus did, around 30 A.D., so you can put that together and get his approximate age. Now, he tells us that Caesar Augustus issued a decree across the empire for a census. And does anybody uh, remember uh, Octavian? He was in that second triumvirate, wasn't he, in history? Uh, was it Lepidus and Mark Antony and himself that were in that tangle? to see who would gain power in Rome. And it seems that Octavian comes to the forefront and he rules for about 40 years and is known as the, technically as the first emperor of Rome. Now Julius Caesar was before him. Of course, he, he was uh, put to rest by Brutus. But, uh, and so he was never officially an emperor. But uh, Octavian was. And he did a lot of good things, Octavian did, as emperor and restored peace uh, to the empire. And one of the things that they did was to have a census for military purposes and tax purposes. And Quirinius was the governor of Syria at this time uh, during the census. And remember that Judea was part of the bigger province of Syria. So he's the one that administered the taxation in that area. Now there's a problem there because in Acts chapter 5 and in the writings of Josephus, we find that Quirinius did an unpopular taxation in 6 AD. Now that doesn't fit our chronological order for the birth of Jesus, does it? Okay, so we got to do, there may be a problem there and critics said, look, Luke got it wrong. You know, this census he's talking about took place in 6 AD. Further along, we get a finding in archaeology and we discover what? Quirinius ruled also at around 7 BC. He had two terms. They didn't know about that, but Luke did. Okay? And so we even see that in today's political realm, don't we? A person may... Uh, win an election or be appointed for a time and then he's not and then he gains a term again. And evidently, that's what happened with Quirinius. And so he had maybe two census and two taxations. It tells us that Joseph and Mary had to travel back to the uh, residence where uh, their hometown, uh, Bethlehem, because of their ancestor David. That was his origin. And so they went back to register at their ancestor's home. Now that fits the prophecy from Micah 5 and verse 2, where the prophecy is made that out of you, referring to Bethlehem, will come one who will reign over Israel. And so the Jewish scholars, rabbis knew that this predicted Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And, of course, God, through his providence, arranged it to be so, didn't he? He knew all of this in his foreknowledge. 
and it's arranged, and no, and no surprise to him that this is where the Messiah would be born, even though he's from Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem. And then as we go down to letter C on your outline, you see some of the arguments made by the critics to say that Luke did not know what he was talking about. And the points they make is that there's no evidence that uh, Caesar Augustus ever made such a decree, they said. And by the way, they haven't found direct evidence for that, but indirect. And secondly, they said that Quirinius was not the governor at that time, but only in 6 AD. And of course, we've already discussed the finding that proved that to be wrong. And thirdly, they said the residents did not have to return to their ancestral home, like Luke said. Later on, we find that in Egypt, there's a papyrus that's showing that in Egypt, they did return to their ancestral home. And Israel did too. And if they did it, then who's to say that Rome probably didn't follow suit and make it less offensive to these people that they were governing to return to something they were familiar with back to their ancestors' home. We see that in letter D. I've noted <coughs> some findings written in a book by Josh McDowell. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's really good at writing apologetics for Christians. In one of his books uh, that I read, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, on page 63, gives these next three arguments to show that Luke was right. That these findings that later came on, they found that Augustus did have some military and tax summaries at the end of his reign. And it's very possible that he did it every 14 years uh, because Egypt did so and, and this was done in Israel. And so it could very well have been done by Augustus. And the inscription that I noted before that was found in Antioch shows, just as the Bible said, Quirinius was the governor in about the right time of 7 B.C. Well, then at the end of our first section of the first seven verses, we see that Jesus is born in an unlikely place. He's born in a manger. Now, what's a manger? Simply a horse trough. A place where animals eat out of. And it says in the New American Standard that there was no room in the inn. The NIV, I think, talks about a guest room not being available. And, and so... Was it an inn or was it a guest room? Was it a cave? What was it? Well, we're not sure. But I think it's probably unlikely that he was born in an inn because uh, the inns back then were so immoral, uh, so, you know, that people just didn't want to stay there. It's not like the Hilton that we have today that you can go to or something like that. Uh, you would try to find a friend's house or a relative's place. And maybe they tried that. Maybe Joseph and Mary tried to set up a place, but when they got there, it was given away. The room was given away. It wasn't available. Maybe they found a residence of poor people that sometimes the poor people would live, their top section on the roof would be for animals and people to live together. Could be that they stayed in a place like that. 
where this happened. But nevertheless, not the place you would expect for God, the Son, the Son of God, to come and be born. But that's the way God works sometimes, isn't it? Our next section is, uh, regards the angel's announcement to the shepherds that we discussed. These shepherds were in the vicinity of Bethlehem, overlooking the flocks. Probably a lot of those animals were used in sacrifices at the temple. And they're out doing this, minding their own business. And all of a sudden, an angel appears to them and makes an announcement. Now, who was this angel? We're not sure. In chapter 1, it was Gabriel. Guess it could have been Gabriel again, but we're not told. But the angel makes an announcement to them that there's, you know, this baby is going to be born. Now, what was their reaction when the glory shone around these angels, around this angel? <laughs> they were afraid. They were terrified. Now, that's not unusual in the Bible. When people see angels, that's a usual response. They must have been awesome in their regular appearance. And, and so we see examples of that. Remember the two Marys that came to the tomb and saw the angels and they appeared like lightning. You remember that that same instance, you have the Roman soldiers who were so terrified, it said they shook, you know, like they were dead men because they had seen angels. Uh, I think of the story in Judges 6 of Gideon. After he had encountered angels, he came back home, realized that he actually had seen an angel, and he thought, oh, I'm going to die because I saw an angel. Awesome creatures that God has created. And uh, a lot of times they had to say, don't be afraid. I bring you good news. And the good news was this. They said, a Savior is born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. There's a lot in that statement there. NIV has Messiah. Your translation may have Christ, essentially the same term. Uh, Messiah had more political carryover with it. But let's look at these terms. They mean a lot. First of all, he calls him a Savior. Now, if you look back in Isaiah, chapter 43 and verse 11, how many Saviors are we supposed to have? Only one. You know, it says in Isaiah, Jehovah speaking, I'm your only Savior. There is no other. It's Jehovah speaking. But yet, in the New Testament, who's presented as our Savior? Jesus. What does that say about His divinity? It says a lot, doesn't it? He is a part of that three in one that is so mysterious to us. And, and then, <clears throat> He is not the Savior they expected. They expected a Savior from political strife, from oppression, to overthrow the Romans. But he saves them from sin and death, which is such, so much more important to us. Messiah uh, in the Greek is Christos, I believe, or the Christ. It means the anointed one. It means royalty or king in the line of David. 
And so they were expecting a Messiah, but not the one they got. And even today, I think sometimes Christians have trouble in really understanding what the Messiah is all about and what his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom, and get it confused. And uh, I think that some people are looking for him to set up an earthly millennium before he comes a second time. I think that's another one of those misunderstandings, in my opinion. I believe he will come and reign on this earth with the new heavens and new earth after the second coming. But so many people are looking for an earthly king, but he comes as a spiritual king over a spiritual empire. And then thirdly, he's called the Lord. In Greek, I think that's kurios. It means master. In the Greek Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the old Hebrew Bible, they would use this term, kyrios, the Lord, in place or in substitution for Yahweh or Jehovah. So you're talking about them believing them to be on par with Jehovah. Here's the Lord, Savior, Messiah, Lord. Now, did every one of his followers understand those terms right away and the implication? No way. It took them a while, didn't it? Even his parents, I think, gradually learned along the way. Mary pondered these things, it says in her heart. But she marveled at the new testimonies given along the way, didn't she? As she began to grasp that, hey, this is not a normal baby just as the angel has told me about. Well, all of a sudden, not just one angel, but a whole host of angels begin to sing. And they sing, Gloria in excelsis Deo, which is Latin for glory to God in the highest heaven. And it's just like the angels just had to break out in song for this glorious event. When the shepherds heard the news, did they hang around, go back home, and watch a few TV series? No. <laughs> what did they do? They immediately went to the place they were told about. And I guess there was just one little baby in a manger, and they found him and said, this is the one. And they, were, they, they, they spread the news, the amazing news. This, after all, this is not something you keep to yourself, is it? But you let others know what has just happened to change world history. And then in E, Mary treasures these things in her heart and ponders them. I can't even imagine, and some of you, uh, many of you who have been mothers, to think of your child and see, you know, all the things that have been said about your child and then to experience those things along the way must have been so Wonderful at times, and yet on the other end, heartbreaking for her, especially at the end. The next section is uh, Jesus and his parents pre being presented at the temple. Uh, Jesus, of course, was born under the law, wasn't he? And so because of that, he was subject to the Jewish law. And his parents were good Jewish parents. So what did they do after eight days? Had him circumcised, just like the old covenant sign with Abraham, Genesis 17. 
They did what they were supposed to do and circumcised this child. And they, what name did they give him? The one that the angel had prescribed. His name would be Jesus. What does Jesus mean? God saves or Jehovah saves. And that would fit his job description, wouldn't it? That's exactly what he did. He came to save. In the Old Testament, it was a common name, by the way, Jesus. In the Old Testament, the equivalent was Joshua. And, and so, you know, growing up must have been, in many ways, a normal child. You can imagine his brothers and sisters and all his cousins and friends thought of him just as a normal child. And he had a normal name, yet he was far from the normal child in many ways, right? And his destination. Well, it took then a, a period of purification, a time of 40 days before Mary could be seen at the temple to be close to the sacred things in the sanctuary. By law, uh, she had to wait uh, 40 days after giving birth to a male. I think it was increased with a female. I'm not quite sure about that, Alan. You, you can inform us as the reason. <laughs> but uh, it seems that for a male child, it was a longer ceremonial purification. I mean, for a female, longer time and a shorter time for the males. But still, 40 days before she could appear at the temple, and they followed the Jewish law as good Jewish parents would do. And they had to, she had to make a sin offering uh, because of this purification. Not that she had sinned in this regard, but that's the way it was set up. And they were supposed to give a year-old lamb and a, a dove or a pigeon. But if you were too poor to do that, then you could give two doves or two pigeons. And that's what she did. Her and Joseph gave one of the two. I'm not sure. I guess that's where we get the term, the two turtle doves, right, uh, for, in, in our song that was given for purification rites. Now, not only her purification, but his dedication, right? What did the Old Testament say about the firstborn males born to Israelite? They were dedicated to the Lord. Looking back to the Passover, remember what happened to the Egyptian firstborn? All wiped out, but who was saved? Because of the blood, post, blood on the post. The Israelites. And so since they were saved, they were considered consecrated to the Lord. And the animals too, firstborn animals, well, they were, the animals were sacrificed, thankfully, not the humans, but they were consecrated to the Lord. Now we find in Numbers 3 this unique thing. I had not really understood this until I was studying this. But in Numbers 3, in order to take the place of your uh, responsibility to serve and consecrate to the Lord that the Levites could take your place. So the Levites then in Numbers 3 verses 11 through 13 could take the place of this firstborn. There's a lot of things that uh, we might consider uh, a little bit strange that God uses and uh, to bring glory to himself and uh, there are a number of these that I saw. Well, as they got to the temple, they were met by a couple of folks that 
sort of corroborated what they had heard earlier about this baby, right? An old, they meet an old, seemingly an older man. We're not sure how old he was. Simeon, and they meet a prophet, prophetess by the name of Anna. Uh, Simeon comes, and he's been led by the Holy Spirit to know that before he dies, he's going to see the Messiah. And he'd been longing for that all his life. And once he takes the baby in his arms, you know, then he somehow the Holy Spirit directs him to know that this is the one. And he, he begins to sing of him a praise. In Latin, I don't, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, non dementis, which means you may now dismiss your servant. I've seen what you promised me that I was going to see. I'm ready to go. And so he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel, which simply means the comfort of Israel. This Messiah would bring comfort back to the oppressed, those who had been under the rule of these foreigners for a while now. Now he makes several statements in verses 34 and 35 that I think we should really look at, Simeon does, because they tell us a great deal of truth about this salvation in Jesus Christ. Was this salvation to be only a Jewish event? No. You notice that he says it's for all nations. And uh, it took them a little while to figure that out. Remember Peter had a little trouble figuring that out? Until he met Cornelius and had the vision. And then in Acts 10, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That's the type of God we serve. For all along, this message was supposed to go through Israel. They were to bring the Messiah, and they had that glory. They had the glory of his temple presence, of God's presence. They had the covenants and all of that. But it was not supposed just to stay with them, was it? They were supposed to, if you look at Isaiah 49 and verse 6, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. He talks about the remnant of Israel. He says, I will make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It never was supposed to be about just the land of Palestine. Those promises would extend to the whole earth because after all, the whole earth is God. And he wants to save all of us, all those that will come in faith. And Simeon had this in his message. And again, Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said. Yeah, they had heard some of this before, but it's shedding new light on what the nature of their son would be. Now, was it all peaches and cream, according to Simeon and his prediction? No. Going to be some tough times. Uh, this child is destined to cause some division. It says there will be a, a, a falling and rising of many. He would be a sign spoken against and reveal the hearts of many. You know, it all comes down to our choice of saying, no, who is this Jesus? Is, is he God who came to save us? Or is he just an ordinary man that was a little bit off? He was a good man, but missed really uh, 
he was either a liar or a lunatic or Lord, one, and you and I accept him as Lord. And so a lot of the folks, though, in, in uh, Israel were looking for the wrong type of Messiah, and they had a hard time with this being the Messiah. In Romans chapter 9, it says that many of the Jews saw Christ as a stumbling block. Why? Because they wanted a righteousness the way they wanted to go about it, and not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that was a stumbling block for them that they could not get past. And so you had to accept. It comes down to it, do we accept Jesus for who he said he is, or do we reject it? That is the choice. Also, Simeon tells us that it's going to be a, there's going to be a sword to pierce Mary's soul. Can you imagine sitting at the foot of the cross as a mother and watching the humiliation and the torture and rejection of this godly man. Can't imagine. But she was there to witness all of that. And then there's Anna, a widow who had been married only seven years and then had been a widow for the rest of her 84 years. And where was she all the time, the Bible says? At the temple, day and night. Now, I don't know if that means she lived there, had quarters there, or it means that if you ever wanted to find her, that's where she was, doing God's work. Either way, she was fasting and worshiping and praying all the time, and she was given the right to recognize this child too and praised God for it. You think, well, that's an outlier. I didn't know that there were female prophets. Yeah, there are several right in the Scripture. There's Miriam, Aaron's sister, Deborah, who was both judge and prophet, Huldah, who was a prophet in Jerusalem during the reign of King Josiah. And then in the, you say, well, that's Old Testament. Yeah, but New Testament too, right? The four daughters of Philip who were set apart for the Lord and were unmarried prophets who prophesied. And so you've got, this is a situation where God is going to bless all parts of society, all gen, both genders, and all the different races, the whole world will see the blessing that's coming through Israel. So she gave thanks to God and looked forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, what happened then after they had done all this at the temple? Where did Joseph and Mary return back to Nazareth and Galilee where the child grew strong in wisdom and grace? Luke doesn't tell us about the fleeing to Egypt, does he? I don't know when that occurred. Maybe it occurred after this presentation at the temple. I'm not sure. But he just doesn't mention it. He has them coming back to Nazareth in order to raise their child well then we go to the final section as the 12 year old boy is found in the temple it seems that it was the custom of Joseph and Mary to go to Jerusalem each year for the Passover and it was a requirement for all uh, Jewish males back in the old law 
to go to three different festivals. The Passover, uh, Pentecost, which was also called the Feast of the Harvest or Feast of the Weeks, which came seven weeks after the Passover. And also the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering, where they set up these temporary booths to simulate what they went through in the wilderness to celebrate the harvest of the orchards and the vines. And so uh, they were supposed to go to all three, but because they had been spread out over the years for different reasons, it was hard to make that travel distance all the time. And so uh, most of them tried to come at least once every year, and so they chose the Passover. It seems that's what Joseph and Mary were doing here uh, at this time of year. Well, they were there for seven days to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover, and they started on the way home. They're in this caravan, <laughs> and a day later or so, Mary all of a sudden says, where's my son? What's happened to him? He must be with some other people in the caravan. I think of the movie Home Alone when I think about this. <laughs> Remember the, the mother <laughs> who was so... Anxious when she was in the airport and realized, oh no, I've left, what was her son's name and character? Kevin. Yeah, Kevin. Left Kevin back at home. And she tried to get back. And Mary must have had some of those same thoughts, right? Uh, he's 12 years old. Yeah, he can take care of himself, but still, you know, it's a little uh, anxious time for him. So they go back and where do they find him? In the temple discussing the law with the rabbis and the teachers there and uh, seemingly uh, knowing just as much as they do <laughs> at 12 years old and able to discuss it with them. But he was there in a preparation to become a full member of the synagogue, which usually occurred, I think, at age 13. But age 12, it was not unusual for these Jewish boys to come in and discuss things. And, and it's a prep time. And so it's not unusual that he would be there what was unusual is that he didn't let his parents know. And it seems Mary's a little bit distraught about this when she does find him, you know, on the third day. And what's her question? Son, why have you treated us like this? To me, that's not an unreasonable question, is it, as a parent? I don't know why. Maybe he let some of the relatives know and they didn't transfer the information. I don't know. But here he is doing this in the temple, and he says what? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Notice he says my father's house. That was not typical of the way the Jews referred to God. They would say our father. But Jesus said my father, but indicating he had some understanding of his special relationship. And then what did Jesus do? He went back with them, became an obedient child. That's what he's supposed to do, isn't he? Here he is, God in the flesh, yet he goes back home and honors his parents and obeys them. Subject to them because that was the place that God had put him. We can learn a lesson from that. There's sometimes when we need to be in subjection, even where we are you know, maybe more talented or more gifted than someone else. But we need to be in subjection to them. Jesus was a good son. 
and obeyed his parents. And it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Well, in conclusion, just say a couple things. God oftentimes uses unlikely people, humble circumstances, to carry out his plan of redemption. Using ordinary folks like you and me to do extraordinary things in his kingdom. You may think, I don't do much. You probably do more than you think. If you find your place, your niche, and your gift that God's given you and just use it, then God can do mighty things. Secondly, sometimes the world misunderstands what the Messiah is all about. They did. They were looking for a political ruler. He came with a kingdom that was not of this world. In Philippians 2, it says that he gave up the divine privileges and laid them aside to become a humble servant and to save us. Even though he was equal to God. That was what he was and that's what he is today. He comes to seek and save sinners, you and I. The question I'll leave with you is what do you do with Jesus? And we want to accept him for who he is because he has something great in store for us, for those of us who believe. Thankful for the incarnation, aren't you? Thankful for his death, thankful for his resurrection, and now his ascension at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf at this very moment. Thanks. You got any other stuff? No, we announced this beginning. Yeah. Any others? Okay, we'll see you guys in three weeks, I guess.